Now, we are looking, going to look together at the next to the last book of the New Testament, the little letter of Jude, just before the book of Revelation. This uh, is a remarkable letter. I wonder how many of you read it through today. Would you raise your hand if you did? Well, our forest of hands is growing a little bit, but we're almost through the Bible. So you don't have much chance left. But uh, I do ex uh, hope that you will read these books each time before we have this comment. They'll be so much more helpful to you. This little letter uh, is full of uh, thunder and lightning. And yet it uh, didn't start out that way. The writer of the letter tells us the circumstances under which he wrote in the opening verses. And uh, uh, he himself is a most remarkable person. You'll note that he says of himself in the very first verse, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And that, of course, would identify him uh, to others because James was very well known in the early church. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the uh, author of the epistle of James, which we have in our New Testament. And he was a, a well-known, famous uh, person in the early church, not only because he was in himself an outstanding man, but he was also the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the physical brother of Jesus, the half-brother, of course, and uh, had grown up in that little home in Nazareth with Jesus himself. And isn't it remarkable that Jude, who was the brother of James and would also be a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, says nothing about that in the opening of his letter. But you notice how he puts it. Jude, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that we can see that this man who grew up in Nazareth also with the, with the Lord Jesus and his brother James has now learned to see Jesus no longer after the flesh, as the Apostle Paul puts it, but uh, as uh, what he truly was, God become man. And he now worships him. He had a unique experience in the Christian church, he and his brother James, in that they were the two of the brothers of Jesus who later became the disciples of the one with whom they grew up. What a remarkable thing it must have been to them. And yet what clear testimony this gives of the deity of the Lord Jesus. For if anyone would be in the position to refute the claims of Christ to being God, and who would ultimately reject such pretension on the part of someone with whom they grew up. It would be the brothers of Jesus. Yet here are two of them, the writers of the letters of the New Testament, who by that very fact affirm that what Jesus said was true. And though they did not come to belief in him until after the resurrection from the dead, nevertheless, this is a seal of confirmation that the claims of the New Testament concerning Jesus Christ are valid, supported even by those who would have every reason to deny them if they were false. And thus we have another letter from the, from the pen of the brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm struck too by the fact that Je the Jude here, uh, 
takes, gladly and willingly takes the place of second fiddle to his brother James. I've seen some people who were brothers or sisters of famous personalities who were disturbed by being always introduced as the sister of so-and-so or the brother of so-and-so. And one lady said to me one day, uh, who was the sister of a, of a very famous Christian leader, she said, I get so tired of being introduced as the sister of so-and-so. She said, someday I'd like to be introduced for my own sake. Well, that isn't the case with Jude. He's quite content here, you see, to say the brother of James. He's learned how, uh, he's learned the, the spiritual secret that God always has a place for everyone. And if it helps to identify him that way, he's perfectly willing to take that place. But then he tells us in verse 3 how he came to write the letter. He says, Beloved, being very eager to write to you of our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He had started out, you see, to write a letter that would explain what the Christian faith was all about and uh, add uh, certain uh, insights and understanding to it. And certainly uh, he was in a position to do this. I think perhaps he had been pressured and asked by others since he was probably the last remaining uh, relative of the Lord Jesus who was in the uh, Christian church. He was probably being urged to put down his memoirs and to recount what he had experienced. And now he had determined to do that when news has come to him that there's an outbreak of some very false and, uh, and distasteful teaching going on. And he feels rather constrained by the Holy Spirit to stop the treatise that he was going to write and write a tract instead. And the treatise evidently never got written. But the tract is a very valuable addition to the New Testament scriptures. And it's all that we have from the pen of this man. Uh, so he writes to them to contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. There's something striking about that. That says three things to me. It says first that our faith is not something that anybody has manufactured. It was delivered to us. It isn't fabricated. It isn't worked up by a collection of individuals and uh, uh, finally grew together. It's one body of facts that is consistently delivered by authoritative persons, uh, the apostles, and has come to us through them. And furthermore, uh, Jude uses a term here that indicates it was once for all delivered. Uh, it was only given at one time in the history of the world. And it doesn't need any additions. This little letter, lying as it does at the very back door of the, Old, of the New Testament, at the uh, close of the revelation of the church in the first century, is a wonderfully helpful letter to use in answering the cults and the isms and the false doctrines that are abroad today, or in any age. In fact, uh, it's my judgment that every single false doctrine uh, that has ever been perpetrated in its essence is answered here in the letter to Jude. 
one of them, of course, is the idea that as several groups uh, represent that uh, we, we need further revelation beyond the Bible. I don't know if you've ever had any contact with Mormons, but this is what the Mormons tell us that the revelation that God gave didn't, didn't stop with the New Testament, that you need help beyond this, and that God is still giving apostles to the world, and new truth is continually breaking out from God that needs to be proclaimed. And uh, there's no end to the truth that God wants to give to us, and that therefore we need new books, new revelations, the Book of Mormon and other books. And this is the basis for Mormon teaching. But you see how clearly Jude answers that when he says, I want you to contend for the salvation that was once for all delivered unto the saints. It was given to you through the apostles at, at one particular time in history, and it does not need any additions to it at all. It's already been given. And for, the third thing about that is that it is uh, uh, not only uh, delivered to us, and delivered once for all. But uh, it's uh, something we need to contend for. It needs to be proclaimed. And here's something that's been greatly misunderstood these days. There are those who think that contending for the faith means to um, kind of roll the Bible up and make a big uh, bludgeon out of it and beat people over the head with it. And this is the way you contend with for the faith. And there are certain ones who feel that they need to be very contentious in contending for the faith. This isn't what Jude has in mind at all. He's not talking about these fire-eating fundamentalists who breathe out threatenings and slaughter against anyone who doesn't dot their I's or cross their T's the way they do. No, no, he's talking about the need for proclaiming the truth. That's the way you contend for it. Tell it out. As Charles Spurgeon used to put it, the, the truth is like a lion. Who ever heard of defending a lion? Just turn it loose and it'll defend itself. And this is the way the word of God is. If we begin to proclaim it, it will defend itself. Now the reason for this, as he goes on to tell us, is that there were certain false teaching teachers who had crept into the church. Look at verse 4. For admission has been secretly gained by some who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly persons who perverted the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What had bothered Jude so was that these people had, had arisen within the church. This was not an attack from outside. These were not pagans. These were people who professed to be Christians and who had risen within the church. And they were doing two things, as Jude saw it. They were changing the grace of God into license to live immoral, sexually degraded lives. And as you read through this epistle, you'll see that's exactly what characterized these men. They were teaching, basically that uh, uh, the body was, uh, was sinful and that anything that happened in the flesh was, uh, was therefore uh, uh, sin and everything the, Bible, uh, the, the body did was sin and therefore it didn't make any difference what you did with your body as long as your spirit was all right. 
and you could indulge the body to the full. It was the spirit that counted. The body was no good anyhow. And second, they were saying that the grace of God is so wonderful that God will forgive anything you do, and therefore, the more you sin, the more grace. And go to it. Now, this is the same kind of an idea that is being promulgated in our own day. There are those who also rising within the church are saying that uh, we have progressed beyond these old-fashioned, stuffy, biblical ideas against uh, uh, licentiousness and immorality, and we now have a new morality, which uh, is based on the Christian theme of love. And if you love anybody, it doesn't make any difference what you do with them. Love covers everything. Love justifies anything. And as long as two people are genuinely in love, they can live as they please. And you know how widespread that idea is today. And it's an exact heritage of these who were troubling the first century church and called forth this condemnation from the apostle Jude. He says these, this has to be dealt with because it's causing difficulty within the church. Now, I'm not going to read the whole of the letter, but let me cat, capture for you now how Jude handles this problem. In verses 5 through 7, he points out three examples that confirm the fact that God is not going to ignore this kind of thing. God does something about this when it breaks loose. The judgment of this kind of person is certain. That's Jude's theme. And he has three biblical examples to prove it. One he takes from the story of Israel as they move out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. And he says to it, uh, he, he reminds these people that uh, when God saved the people out of Egypt, he did a great thing. And he delivered a multitude of people. Well over a million people were brought out of Egypt by the power of God, by the right hand of God. And uh, they were a mixed multitude, as the Old Testament tells us. Some of them were really believers, but some were not. But they were all delivered, and they were all set free, and all went through the Red Sea, and all experienced the miracles of God's fatherly care over them. Ah, but when they came into the wilderness, God began to choose and judge among them. And those who murmured and complained and rejected his leadership and refused to enter into the land, he judged. And finally, only two out of all that multitude that left Egypt entered into the land, Joshua and Caleb. The rest all perished in the wilderness. And this was, uh, their, their children entered in, but this was God's way of saying that those who refused to act by faith and live the way they preach, he has a way of handling. And second, the second example he uses is the angels. He reminds us of the angels who did not keep their first position. Angels who lived in the very presence of God, who ministered before him, and who served constantly at his bidding. Angels who see the face of God, and yet, were so uh, faithless to their own prerogatives and blessings that they, they, they fell and uh, they uh, followed Satan in his rebellion, some of them, and others, as we're told in the sixth chapter of Genesis, 
came to earth and through lust became involved with the daughters of men. And thus they too were, were reserved in judgment. And God dealt with those angels. Even angels, when they fall, are not excluded from judgment. That's his point. And the two things that made the angels fall were pride and lust. And those were the characteristics of these men that Jude is talking about. And then the third thing was the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities of the plain down there at the southern end of the Dead Sea who fell into the practice of homosexuality. So open, so blatant, so widely accepted that when angels visited Lot there in the city, the city, the men of the city surrounded his house and, and ordered Lot to bring those men out that they might practice sexual degrading things with them. And for this, God judged that city. And Jude reminds us, God does not uh, uh, take these things lightly. There's a judgment uh, provided for it. And uh, it may be sudden, as in the case of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It may be long delayed, as in the case of the angels. Or it may be something that comes about more naturally, as in the case of those who came out of Egypt. But God is not going to ignore it. And this is certainly something to consider in these days when churchmen are, are advocating uh, the, uh, the practice of homosexual things and other like deeds. Now in, verses, in verse 8, you have what was wrong with these men. Yet in like manner, he said, these men in their dreamings defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile the glorious ones. And verses 9 through 13 take up those three divisions again and describe in detail what he means in reverse order. First he takes the reviling of the glorious ones. And he refers to an incident that is not recorded in our Bibles but comes from a, a book called The Assumption of Moses which we do not have in our, in our Bibles but which was familiar to these writers of the and readers of the first century. And many have been troubled by this because they think uh, Jude is, uh, is referring to a book that perhaps has been lost from the Bible. No, it wasn't lost. We still have it. Still available. Every now and then, somebody comes out in the newspaper with a, a dramatic advertisement offering to sell you the lost books of the Bible. Just recently found, again. And let you in on secrets that nobody's ever known about. And of course, which the Christian church has tried to keep people from discovering. Now, don't fall for that old gag. They've been doing that for 20 centuries. And the lost books are always the same old books. They've been around for 20 centuries. And if you want to read them, you can read them in any reputable theological seminary library. They're available. But uh, they don't represent lost scriptural books. They are a mixture of truth and error. And what these New Testament writers sometimes do is to refer back to certain incidents that are recorded in them that are true and take them out of that and, and record them in the pages of Scripture so that what is recorded here is perfectly true. And uh, we don't need to question it in the least. But not everything in that book of the Assumption of Moses is true. You have the same thing occurring a little later in here in the book of Enoch. 
And Enoch is quoted here in a quotation that we don't find in our Bibles, but it does come from the book of Enoch, which is available also yet today. And uh, we can read, and, and Jude simply brings this quotation out as that which is genuine and reflects true. What had happened was that when the Moses died, the Michael, Michael the great archangel, the highest of the angels, had disputed with the devil over the body of Moses. And the uh, claim of the devil was twofold. He said he had a right to the body of Moses. One, because Moses was a murderer. He had slain an Egyptian. And since uh, he was a murderer, the devil had a claim upon him. And two, the body of Moses was material. And since, according to the teaching of these, these uh, apostates in the church... The, the body is worthless, material things are of no value. The devil said the body of Moses belonged to him because uh, it was in the realm of material things over which he was Lord. And the angel Michael disputed this and claimed the body for the Lord. As of course the whole, the whole of scripture claims our bodies are important to God. And God has a plan for them, as well as for the Spirit. But the point he's making here is that even the angel Michael, the archangel, the highest of the angels, did not say anything reviling to Satan when he confronted him face to face, but simply said to him, the Lord rebuke you. And uh, Jude's argument is, if archangels who have so much power in their hands and so much knowledge of truth are careful to respect the God-given dignity of a fallen angel, then why should anybody else, mere men, speak contemptuously of the principalities and powers in high places? It's a thing to think about, isn't it? When certain today uh, just rule out as sneer contemptuously at the idea that the scripture presents of the existence of demons or, or Satan and other things. Now the second thing that he develops is this matter of rejecting authority. And he refers to it uh, in uh, verse 11. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perish in Korah's rebellion. Now Jude is tracing here the way sin develops, and especially rebellion develops in the life. And he personifies it with three biblical men, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And uh, he speaks of the way of Cain. Now, the way of Cain was essentially that of selfishness. Cain stands forever as the man who thought of himself, who had no concern for his brother, who didn't love his brother, but put him to death, and who went on in selfish concern, only looking out for his own welfare. And that's the first step, says Jude, on the way to ultimate rebellion. Selfishness. The second thing was the error of Balaam. There are two stories about Balaam in the Old Testament. One is that story of, of how a pagan king hired him to curse the children of Israel. And as he was riding on the donkey, you remember to do this, the donkey balked because he saw the angel of God. 
And finally, the, the donkey had to speak with a human voice in order to rebuke the madness of this prophet. And the thing that leaps out uh, at you in that whole story is the covetousness of this man. He's eager for gain, for greed. And the second story confirms this because in order to be, uh, to uh, gain certain uh, pay that was offered to him, he taught the children of Israel how to sin. He taught them how to fall into moral uncleanness. He sent the pagan women among the camp to seduce the men of Israel. And not only to seduce them sexually, but also to introduce them to the worship of idols, which involved sexual rites. And thus he became guilty of, of imparting, of teaching others to sin. Now that's the error of Balaam. To teach someone else to sin is far worse than sinning yourself. I've often thought how, how I would hate to stand in the shoes of some of these prophets that are speaking to young people today. Dr. Timothy Leary, who's telling them, for instance, that drugs won't hurt them, that L LSD is a way to new adventures of the mind and will not hurt you in any way. And when I see some of the results of this, it makes me burn with anger at that man, that he should be allowed to go about spreading these false ideas. And I often think of the words of Jesus when he said, it were better for a millstone to be hanged about your neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea than that you should offend one of these little ones who believe in me. That's the error of Balaam. Selfishness first, and then teaching someone else to sin, and it ends up in the gainsaying or the rebellion, the defiant rebellion of Korah. Korah and his group, remember, were the ones who said of Aaron and Moses, who do you think you are? You have made yourself the leaders of Israel. Who do you think you are? Why, we're as good as you. We have as much authority as you have in Israel. What makes you think that you have the right to speak for God? And thus challenge openly and blatantly the God-given authority of Moses and Aaron. And you remember what happened to them. God said, look, Korah and your group, you stand over here. Moses and the rest of you, you stand over here. And I'll show you what's going to happen. And when Korah and his group got over here, suddenly the ground opened up beneath them. And they went down alive into the pit. God's remarkably dramatic way of saying that defiance of authority represents ultimate sin. God-given authority. Well, Jude goes on. He's getting pretty hot here, isn't he? He goes on now to take up the third matter, which is first in the listing of verse 8, defiling the flesh. He says... These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they boldly carouse together. Now, the love feasts were nothing more nor less than potluck suppers. In the early church, every Sunday, the Christians would gather together and they'd bring the food with them to the service. And after the service, they'd all partake together. And they'd put all the food out on the table. And this they called a love feast. What a blessed name. So much better than potluck supper. 
I like potluck suppers, but I don't like the name. I'm physically opposed to the first syllable, and I'm theologically opposed to the second. <laughs> but love feasts, now there's a term for you. And these love feasts were wonderful times of fellowship. At least they could have been and were for a while. But then, as usual, people began to divide into cliques and schisms and divisions, and some of them kept the chicken for themselves, and others, you know, set aside the best pieces of angel food cake and the pie, and they, they had that, and soon there was division. And there were certain, these ones were, were the leaders of this. They were blemishes on their love feasts, boldly carousing together, looking after themselves. Huh. What a stroke that is. It? Looking after themselves. That's the mark of this kind of a person. And then he goes on. Waterless clouds carried along by winds. Oh, this man Jude had a remarkable sense of imagery. It reminds you of James and also of the Lord Jesus in his ability to speak and to use all the figures and, and uh, appurtenances of life around him as illustrations. Listen to all of these. They all tell the same story. Useless people. Useless people. Waterless clouds. Promising rain but never coming through. Carried along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn. When the harvest ought to be in, nothing on the trees. Twice dead, not only dead in Adam, but now dead in that second death, rejecting Christ. While uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Nothing but froth, nothing to them, mere froth. Wandering stars for whom the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. Comets just appearing, flashing for a moment across the sky, putting on a bright light for a moment and then disappearing into the darkness, never to show up again. And then he quotes Enoch. In that quotation I referred to, he said, this is exactly the kind of men that were before the flood that Enoch talked about. And finally... He describes them as grumblers, malcontents, following their own passions, loud-mouthed boasters, flattering people to gain advantage. That hurts, doesn't it? Makes me wince a little bit because some of us are guilty of these things even though we don't fall into this classification, but we've let them spread this sort of thing. Grumblers, not content with God's choice of life for them, malcontents, murmuring all the time. But now comes the positive, and with this we close. You must remember, he says, that the apostles told you this would happen. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, verse 20, you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. That means study your Bible. Learn what the truth is. You see, he doesn't say to them, now organize a counter-movement and try to get these people thrown out of the church. He doesn't say that at all. He says, oppose them with the positive. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. You learn the truth. Second, pray in the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase has been twisted today, to, made to mean 
some kind of ecstatic praying in tongues or something like that. That isn't what it means. To pray in the Holy Spirit means to pray according to the teaching of the Holy Spirit and in the power of the Holy Spirit, depending upon God, to study and learn what prayer is and to follow the teachings of the Scripture about it and thus obey the Holy Spirit in your prayer life as well. So Bible study and prayer are the first two things to do. Second, keep, or third, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now some have misunderstood that and they read it as though it said keep yourself in the family of God. As though uh, you have to hang on at all costs and your salvation depends wholly on you. No, no. He's just simply saying, look, God's love is just like the sunshine. It's constantly coming out to us. But we can erect certain umbrellas and barriers that shut it off. Now, don't do that. Learn how to keep yourself walking in the experience of the love of God. When there's no sin unjudged in your life, God's love is constantly able to warm your heart and fill your life. He loves you whether you're walking in the light or not. But walk in the light so that you can experience that love. And keep yourself in the love of God. And finally, wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's the second coming. Keep your hope sharp and bright, looking for the intervention again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what about others? Is it all just personal? Oh, no. Three things to do about others. Convince some who doubt. Answer their arguments. Reason with them. Two, save some by snatching them out of the fire. There are some that we need to act upon, to do something about, to move right in and try to bring them back from disaster. A number of years ago, we had a, a lady in this church, a remarkable woman, who was a born crusader, tall, angular, a former school teacher. She could f pierce you with a glance and r just shrivel you up like that what Harry Ironside used to call a female dreadnought and she used to call me up and she'd hear about somebody who was in trouble spiritually and she'd say now I'll be by in a half an hour you be ready we're going to go see them and she taught me that there are times when you need to move right into a situation take hold of it some saved from the fire but others have mercy on them with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Uh, you know, that's a wise word. I find a lot of young people, for instance, today, that when they become Christians, they want to help people that are in deep and serious trouble, oftentimes sexual trouble. But the problem is that in trying to help them, they themselves have not yet come to the place where they can adequately meet these uh, subtle approaches and they oftentimes catch the very disease they're trying to cure. And that's what he's talking about here. Be careful. There are some that you can't help yet. You're not experienced enough, not old enough yet, not wise enough to help. And others, even the wisest, have to handle with great fear being very careful that they don't allow themselves to be spotted with the flesh.
And finally comes the close on this great benediction, which many of you know by heart. It's one of the great words of the New Testament. Now to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a great word that is. And you notice how it, it falls into three divisions here too. Now to him who's able to keep you from falling. There's the potential of the Christian life. Now, don't read that as though it says, now unto him who does keep you from falling. Because God doesn't always keep us from falling. He's able to. That's the argument of the apostle here. But he doesn't always do it. Because we need to fall sometimes. Some of us won't learn any other way. And when we need, God lets us fall. Not completely. He always uh, holds us back from the final thing. But he'll let us fall. But the argument of the apostle is unto him who, if we, if we weren't so thick-headed and so stubborn and so recalcitrant and so murmuring, he would, and, and obeyed him, if we obeyed him, he'd keep us from falling. We never need to fall. Ah, but the second thing is he comes right in. Even when we do fall, he's able to present us without blemish before the presence of his glory. The word without blemish is the word anomos, which means apart from the law. He has so dealt with us that even our falls have already been handled in Christ. And therefore, he is free to set it aside, ultimately, after we've learned the painful lesson of it, and wipe it out of the record and present us faultless before his glory. Wonderful, isn't it? And finally, with rejoicing. That means we'll have had a part in this too. It won't be just holy Christ doing this all for us automatically. But we are so involved in the process that as we live on through, when we get there, we can say, Hallelujah. Thank God. I've won. As Paul says, I've finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of rejoicing that is waiting. And then the final recognition to the only God.